You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name is Chance Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we are here, as we are every week or every other week, to review three movies of a similar genre. And what are we bound by this time, Noah? We're bound by the uh, subversive, fucked up mind of one Alan Moore, uh, the are. comic book legends. Uh, who penned the graphic novels that were the basis for these film adaptations. And they are The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, V for Vendetta, and Watchmen. Right. Neither of us is an expert on Alan Moore. Neither of us particularly has much expertise where comic books are concerned. In fact, some of us are even on the record as not ever seeing comic book movies. That would be me. Um but we made some adjustments, and we made, did some research, and we talked to some folks who know more than we did. We're ready to roll on the Alan Moore pod. Yeah, I feel like I have the same sort of relationship with comic books that I do with Christianity, like, as a Jewish person. <laughs> like, I know the basic sort of stuff, uh-huh. you know. This guy, no sex occurred. He pops out. He says right. a few things. Water into <laughs> wine. I know that Superman is from another planet. Kal-El is his, like, birth name on his, uh, you know, his Kryptonian birth certificate. Like, I I can get pretty deep in the weeds. But Alan Moore, other than, you know, being aware of these movies when they came out, he was off my radar. Sure. Yeah. uh, We're going to talk... If you're hearing this, we probably just released a mini-episode about Black Panther. So we're in a comic headspace. I don't really see Marvel movies, uh, and only I see DC movies when Noah forces me, but I read Watchmen over the weekend, so I feel, to continue your metaphor, like I'd never even heard of Christianity, and then over the weekend I got deep with like the Book of Revelations or something. Sure. <laughs> so that's where I'm coming from. That's great. You can give wise. us some good uh, compare and contrast kind of stuff. I have so many thoughts on the Leviathan. Get ready. Yeah, and this is also a special episode because I did an interview, Chance, which I so seldom do. That's true, yeah. Yeah, really... I, talk, uh, I talked to Jake Dilly from uh, Comic Headquarters in St. Louis, um, and he gave me some pretty interesting insights about Alan Moore, the man, and then also sort of, I would say, the comic book world's sort of understanding of these films. It's true. It's very helpful to us. And then later on, we're going to hear from uh, Scott Meslow, a returning guest and writer for GQ. Uh, he recently wrote about V for Vendetta. So we've got multiple guests assisting us with their knowledge on this show today. I'm into it. So many guests. But first, a movie that, I don't know, doesn't really deserve much background knowledge, even though we've looked it up. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 2003 is where we're going to begin, right? Absolutely. I would love to start nowhere else with you, okay. with this with this genre. For let us put in the, you know, let it be no, stated on the record. This is the final film of one Sean Connery. That's right. He, I remember well that he retired after this movie. Do you think he made the decision before or after the release of the film? Ooh, I've, you could make a case for during. I could make a case for the only reason he accepted this job is that he has the line, like, I'll only do it if I get to say, the game is on. (laughs) 
which he does in yeah. several different ways three or four times. I mean, it seems like an appealing role for an elder statesman of UK film, um, but I think seems is the key word there. Doing, yeah, we're doing, this is a movie that's sort of the mashup of, it's like a steampunk mashup of like, what if all the characters from like high school British literature jumped into one story that is essentially like in the Sherlock Holmes universe. Sure. Yeah. It's kind of, um, it's like the page master, but without the, without the cartoon books. Right. And all the characters kind of like know each other and they have these powers, which are also sort of their foils, which is an interesting, it's an interesting way to craft a movie. And I feel like visually too, the only person who responded to this movie in a, I'm going to do it that way is Guy Ritchie, who then made the Sherlock Holmes movies like in the same style. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this this film really took a page out of Barry Sonnenfeld's Wild Wild West book, I think. Oh, um, absolutely. Okay, but let's get into it. So this is the first of the three movies we're going to do chronologically, but later more. This comes after V for Vendetta and uh, Watchmen, which was sort of surprising given how innocent this seems. Maybe the comics are not that way. Um, but yeah, it stars Sean Connery as uh, famed adventurer Alan Quartermain, a character first uh, penned by uh, H. Ryder Haggard. He was sort of like a pulpy adventure figure um, from some like early 20th century lit. Um, and he teams up with, as you mentioned, everyone from uh, Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde to Dorian Gray to the Invisible Man. You're forgetting to- the best character, which is Captain fucking Nemo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Captain Nemo. From 20,000 um, Leagues Under the Sea. To Mina Harker, a character from Bram Stoker's Dracula. To Tom Sawyer, who's really kind of the weird, um, the odd man out here who was clearly added for the film so there could be somebody to appease American audiences. His only superpower is that he's like a boy. Right. Yeah, he's a handsome. Much he like sh- Tom Sawyer, the character, his only yeah defining characteristic is that like he's generally younger than everybody else. <laughs> Incredible, um, his metabolism so great. Um, okay, so he's eager to learn things. He's looking for yeah. a dad, and he finds one. He finds one of. in Sean Connery. That's right. And then by um, the end, he gets to tell him that he's the man now, dog. <laughs> are extreme but when our future's at stake they'll be the world's last hope and the game is on so this uh scream dream, scream team <laughs> this scream team is assembled um by a british uh, operative named M, although operative is kind of weird for the 1890s. Um, but he like brings all these people together and they have to save the empire because we see early on in the film that uh, pre-World War One, in kind of the you know turn of the century race for empire between the UK and Germany and other European imperial powers, that somebody is uh, basically sabotaging each country to lay the playing field for what will be World War One. Um, 
Unclear though how like the events of this film stop World War One from happening, or if they just delay it like fifteen years. <laughs> Very unclear. Yeah, um, I really thought we were like building up to, you know, like chemical warfare is like right. what their secret thing was going to be, and it's really just sort of like the industrial revolution is their, yeah, their weapon. Um, so. Other than, like, how weird the cast of characters is, it's, like, a very standard film about, like, getting the band together to battle some, like, masked figure called the Phantom who's just disgusting looking. Um, yeah. Which you find out is also, like, like the reason he looks so disgusting is stupid. Right. Um, yeah, they got to chase him down and use Captain Nemo's submarine and Alan Quartermain's old man guile and Dorian Gray's, um, you know, ability to wield a walking stick. Uh, it's it's a it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what else is there to say? Can we get into it? Sean Connery is like approached to start, you know, his sort of 19th century A team, and he like puts them together. And, like, the gimmick is that they're all, like, characters from this period of literature. But, like, ultimately the movie, like, the reason that they brought the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen together was, like, a ruse of some kind. Right. And what is really happening is that the person who hired them, M, this M character, which, like, did you parenthetically think, like, is this a James Bond? Like, yeah. I thought that's, I thought that was where it was going, and I was it's like, "It's an allusion to something else." It's an allusion to something else, which is that the M stands for Moriarty, and mm. the big bad in this one is the professor himself. And why did he then put the League of? Ex- I didn't follow that part. He just wanted to steal all their superpowers, I guess. Oh, that's right. He wanted right. to make like this sort of. It looked like to be nothing more than sort of like a makeup kit. Right. Full of like things you might want to do, want to be invisible, like you know, swallow this blue dye, and like, oh, do you want to be a vampire? Well, here's some vampire blood. Sure, but so he has a nominal reason, but compared to say uh, other Alan Moore characters of ambiguous morality, who all very clearly want something, what Moriarty wants to do in the end is is no more interesting than power, bwahaha, you know. Yeah, he was just sort of like a high-end arms dealer. Sure. And he was, like, looking to profit off the cynicism of humanity. But where I think this movie, like, missteps from, like, what could have been smart into, like, totally ridiculous Sean Connery, like, doing, like, a Liam Neeson kind of pivot. Yeah. um, Is that they don't really, like, look at what it means to have these 18th century heroes up against 19th century problems. Mm, That's interesting. It like, it shows you this big goofy submarine instead of like saying that like ultimately Moriarty's point and that I think probably Alan Moore was trying to make is that these old school heroes cannot save us from these, you know, these the problem of automation and like the industrial revolution and technology in general. Trench warfare. And trench warfare. And sure, they save the day, but like in Moriarty's speech at the end of this movie, he talks about like, you're, what are you going to do? You're going to stop the future from happening? Like, if you don't kill, if you kill me, like uh, 10 other people or 20, a thousand other people are going to have the same idea. Like, you can't stop them. Right. Which I think is probably the, 
the moral takeaway from the more text, but that's not really like <laughs> what I'm here for. No. Well, and I think, you know, similar talking about character simplicity, it's also kind of weird to me that how a movie that uses somebody with the the warped, bifurcated psychology of, say, Henry Jekyll, or an adventurer who's both sort of, like, profited but found himself alone in, like, Botswana after all these years, or somebody who lives with being a vampire, or Dorian freaking Gray! Like, how does it not borrow the complexity of the actual literary characters when making these movie characters? It's all there for you! Yeah, and, like, that's the... It's like somehow some people knew like what essentially the setup to Dorian Gray is, but nobody actually read the novel like before writing the <laughs> script. Well, I think like Captain Nemo, up. like he's the guy, you know, in the boat. Let's make the boat really big. <laughs> it's like, have you read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or no? And then they have it. And that's fine with me. I th- well, I think it's funny too. They're also counting on the fact that the audience hasn't, which of course they haven't. But like when Dorian Gray is just like, I'd really like to see my painting. I am ashamed of what I did, and I'm good now, and I want to get my painting back. It's like, it's not a twist that Dorian Gray was lying about those things. He's a liar. The whole right. book is about how he's a fucking liar. Yeah, I mean, they did take that. I mean, in this movie, he's also, like, a big fucking liar. True. Um, and then, who's the character, the Invisible, the invisible Man character? Like, I... I mean, they I, call him Skinner, but I don't think that's a name from H.G. Wells. Right. He's sort of like a he's like a Cockney like addition from Snatch or something. Right. It's like the last scene in uh, or the penultimate scene in the Page Master where they're like, uh, and for sci-fi fantasy, we're going to do a dragon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're not going to reference any specific story, but there will definitely be a dragon. There you go. But um, yeah, so that one's sort of out of. And, like, I don't know who this minor character from Dracula is. Uh, Mrs. Harker. Yeah, Jonathan Harker is the protagonist. And Mina's his wife, I guess, who's seduced and bitten by Dracula. Um, But why she's in this movie and is, like, that character in Dracula, but also, like, part-time, like, gun for hire. (laughs) Like, doesn't really add up to me that she's... (laughs) Sure. After the after the events of Dracula, she went on to be a mercenary. Right. Um, yeah. I love that this, this movie's kind of... There's something pleasing about how bad the CGI is. And the era of CGI, too, right? Which is that, like, they think they can do a lot, but, like, there's still a lot they cannot do. Um, yeah. So you there's have- a lot of... Like, a lot of the budget went into this one shot, I think, of the Nautilus coming out of the water. Or we can talk talk about the effects as they relate to uh, the Mr. Hyde transformation, which it's it's so comically kind of... I don't know if this is true to the books, but you know in Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, 1898 original, Mr. Hyde is not, like, mad swole. That's (laughs) not... (laughs) Well, he becomes the Incredible Hulk in exactly. this. Exactly, um, but it's also isn't that book like a well-known allegory for like alcoholism? Sure, of course. So instead of like becoming like a monster who just like says everything and like makes a mess, like yeah, he becomes like very buff, but also just like someone who thinks violence is like but a sport. Exactly, but yes, you're totally right. It's he absolutely... becomes like a professional, like not only the physical size, but the temperament of like a WWE person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
and not uh, not like an anarchist, like Edward Hyde, right. something Alan Moore might have liked. Um, yeah. But can I say, and you, yeah. I think, texted me about this earlier as we're on uh, Mr. Hyde. The like it's gross. Like all the body stuff in this movie oh. is gross. There's a lot of body gross stuff in this whole series, but like sure. this one particularly is just like it's this like dark early two thousands production design, and it's right. just like oh, like what the <laughs> the veins and the colors of these things are just like sickening, and like the <laughs> the mask uh, Phantom is wearing that like is supposed oh. to indicate it's just it's foul. Like his lips are sort of like curling up and like ah, he's a nightmare. <laughs> and there's multiple characters who are just like a rash placed over something muscular. And I really think they could have done, like, they could have gone for Grand Slam with the um, Dorian Gray death at the end, which but should they, have... they fell very short. They're like, uh, cut away to a reaction, quickly! <laughs> and then, like, ah, uh, now he's just dust. Yeah, they kind of ran out of money to actually show the portrait. You can't really see the portrait of Dorian Gray. Maybe well, the makers of this film comes didn't back. know that there even was a portrait. Oh, unclear until the editing room whether they knew about the portrait or not. <laughs> but can I pivot slightly here? Please. And to, to say that, like, I went into this movie, like, thinking, like, this was a stupid, like, of the three we were going to watch, this is going to be the most painful. And I have to say that this movie, like, has a kitschiness to it that is highly watchable. Same. I don't know about highly, but I'm I'm listening. Like, I think just how much everyone on screen is buying in and the fact that this movie, like, reaches, I mean, not only for visually ridiculous, but also sort of, like, this, like, this relationship between Sean Connery and Shane West of, like, he doesn't have a father and he's just, like, this is going to be his last. He has that refrain about, like, the, a jungle cat, like, knows when his time is up. Yeah. And Africa won't let me die. Right. It's just such a swing. You love a good swing, don't you, Chance? I like a swing. Yeah, it, it, it gives... I mean, while it doesn't look at the characters with any depth, they're all weird enough that, like, the two things it gives them to do do make them kind of stick in your mind. Um, right. And, there, yeah, there's this whole... There's this just mad confidence to this movie where it thinks that you're, like you're watching what's going to become like the Marvel industry of this universe when it's really just like a, a Hydrox Oreo cookie in a top hat. <laughs> like <laughs> this is not going to become anything. Oh man. Where do you think uh, Mr. Hyde gets his like really big top hat from? Oh, I don't know. Um, it's tough to say. Maybe that's the only part that grows with him. He certainly goes through a lot of shirts. The, the only side effect to my serum is the fact that you turn into a professional wrestling character and the only thing about you, your hat grows with you. <laughs> Those are the two things. Um, yeah, he's like horrible to look at. Right. And then he has all these references to like, do you remember the chick from the last scene? She was into me. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was like, oh, I don't think she was. You're gross. You're bulbous. It's the best way to describe him. Bulbous. Um, all right, we should probably move toward a rating here. Should we explain how we rate movies on this show? Yeah, cut to that thing. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. 
all movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I think I'm going to go to bat for this one and say, if I'm going to keep my baseball metaphor alive about its swing, I think I went into this movie thinking it was like, you know, a-Rod, like, in his last year, just, like, kind of <laughs> trying to do something but ultimately failing. And I think it is a big enough swing that the outcome is ridiculous enough that it is a, like, bloop single RBI bad good. Sure. With a Conway retirement to boot. Um, I don't, I don't hate this movie. I just, I don't feel that strongly about it. As I was watching it, I was like, thank goodness I was finally checking this out for the first time. I've, I kind of got it confused with Van Helsing from like my 03 DVD blockbuster I feel like I didn't covers. see this movie before because I had seen Van Helsing and just assumed correctly that it's more or less the same thing. Right. <laughs> um, but... When you say that everyone's buying in, like, that's true, but it doesn't mean that much when Stuart Townsend, Shane West, and Petra Wilson buy in. Um, there's sure. Just those there's so much Connery there. And Connery, like, looking like maybe he tried to do a couple of the stunts. Like, I like that. I like it, too. Um, so I'll say that I'm glad I watched it, but, like, oh, I'm going to watch this again. So bad, bad. So I think it makes sense now to cut to my conversation uh, with Jake Dilly from comic headquarters um yeah it was a pleasure chance to do an interview i feel like i've only done creepy interviews up until this point and this one's like sort of normal creepy well like when i like goofed on that uh toy store lady (laughs) 
I thought you were very respectful up until the point you asked if uh, toys come alive. But but like I feel like she knew in my heart at the end that I only came here to ask her one question. Yeah. So where's Jake out of St. Louis? He's in St. Louis. Yeah. So all and our St. Lu- all our St. Louis listeners, call to action. We may, Head to the we store. We may have a couple here. They may yeah. already know of this store. Who's to say? There you go. Um, well, let's hear you talk to Jake. So I'm here with Jake Dilly from Comic Headquarters in St. Louis to give us a little background on Alan Moore and, you know, the comics that inspired uh, the three movies we're going to be looking at today. And Jake, you've seen all these movies, right? I have. Do you have strong feelings about them? I feel like a lot of people do. Uh, They definitely do. So... You know, people that come into the shop love to talk about comics and the movies that are based off of them. Um, And I would say of those, uh, V for Vendetta and Watchmen are definitely the more popular of the three. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has, has a pretty bad reputation. Sure. But, you know, Watchmen and V... While they may not be, you know, exactly like the comics, uh, in general, people like them and don't have too much to, uh, too much negative things to say about them. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit, because I mean, I'm familiar with, you know, a little bit with these comics and of course with these movies, but in doing a little bit of cursory research about Alan Moore, this is like a pretty interesting and strange person that's put these stories out into the world. How did you first sort of connect or what was your entry point into Alan Moore's uh, kind of repertoire? Well, um, when I was first getting into comics, I had a friend that kind of just dumped his work uh, on me. So I read League Watchmen uh, first and Watchmen, you know, it, it can be a bit of a dry read at times. There's just so much description and setup that Alan Moore likes to give and you know some some people really like that and for others you know it's a bit too much but um, you know I really like League and Watchmen Um, Alan Moore he I mean he is a total legend in the comic world he uh, he sort of came onto the scene at a time where things were transitioning from you know, Batman telling you to stay in school and eat your vegetables to, you know, knocking people's teeth in regularly. Um, sure. In a more brutal way. So Alan was kind of, you know, a Frank Miller uh, kind of at the forefront of that. He he writes about a lot of different different uh, philosophical points of view, and, and definitely his work is very political. Um but what Alan Moore does is he tries to really write uh, both perspectives well. Um, he definitely doesn't just present his point of view <laughs> really well and then make the other side look bad. He, I think he does a great job of, of really making you think about both sides and you know, making a decision about who's the bad guy here and, and who's not. He also has made it known that he is not at all happy with the way his comics were adapted into movies. Yeah. Well, at least with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is sort of critically sort of hated and maybe hated by the comic community as well. Um, 
But what do you think of the other two? I remember when Watchmen came out, there was like a camp of people on one side that were like, we love this. It's great. And the other side is like, why are these like weird sex scenes juxtaposed with like odd music cues in here kind of thing? Yeah, you know, the <laughs> some of the soundtrack choices were questionable at best. Um, but really, I mean, as far as Watchmen goes, most of that movie is is pretty pretty damn close to what the book is. Um, you know, comic people love that. Mm-hmm. So what's your feeling on the Zack Snyder school of comic adaptation? Oh, boy. Um <laughs> You know, I'm I'm not his biggest fan. Um, I think I think Watchmen is fine. Um, you know, 300 is ridiculous, but it, it's fun. Um, but and honestly, like I know Justice League received some pretty negative feedback, but I I thought it was leaps and bounds better than uh, Batman versus Superman. So sure. I know that Zach's kind of on the out with uh, Warner Brothers and DC Films, but uh, you know, in general, I, I'm not a big fan of his. He, I don't know. He he tells us all he's a real big comic fan, but sometimes you, you really question it. So, do you find you know working at a comic store and owning a comic store that you know when these kinds of movies come out, do you see people who? normally wouldn't be interested in this kind of medium coming in and being like, Oh, Hey, I just saw black Panther. I just saw, you know, justice league, like, and they come in wanting to sort of see that side of it. Yeah, absolutely. The the movies and the TV shows have helped uh, the industry so much, at least in my, my store. Um, you know, kids were all about getting kids into reading and the next generation of comic readers and, you know, parents will bring their kids in because the kids want it, and then that sometimes gets the parents interested too, or vice versa. And, uh, or we'll get somebody that says, Man, I didn't know that the movie Snowpiercer was a comic first. Do you have it? I would like to read it because the movie was really good. So, sure. I, I think that it all, it all comes full circle and, and helps each other out. Yeah. So movie stuff aside, like what are you excited about lately that like maybe, you know, people who haven't seen a movie adaptation of it are unfamiliar with certain stories or certain comics that are up and coming? As far as comics go? Yeah. Like what's new and exciting at the store? Um, well, uh, here lately, within the last year, DC has really, really changed things around and, and sales show that. And, that's really uh, what's helped that is, is uh, Scott Snyder, who was a, is a really big name in the comic world. He wrote all of the new 52 Batman, and he's currently doing a giant event for DC called Dark Knight's Metal. And it's kind of like this dark uh, alternate dimension rift opens up in an evil Justice League made up of these evil Batmen come through and decide that they want to, you know, kill everybody. <laughs> and so, you know, the promo posters and the first couple issues showing these evil, you know, demonic-looking Batman Justice League members has really gotten people, you know, asking questions and wanting to check it out. And it's been the top seller at our store ever since issue one. Cool. Have you seen the uh, the new Black Panther yet? 
I have not. I'm, I've actually been out of town all weekend, so it's made it a little tough to make it down. But, I, you know, I'm seeing the early reviews and what people are saying online, and, you know, it, it sounds amazing, and I, I can't wait to check it out because no matter how good or bad these movies are, I'm going to go see every single one. Of them, you know? <laughs> That's great. What, in the past, like, you know, five or ten years, what do you think has been... I mean, maybe maybe your favorite uh, adaptation in film, or maybe just what you think is the most faithful adaptation that you've seen. While it's not a direct adaptation, my my favorite uh, comic film recently would probably be The Winter Soldier from Marvel. Um, just as far as the characters in it and the plot, I I don't know. I just think it's the most solid. Marvel movie and maybe superhero movie in general. And I always love that comic story, the winter soldier, like, you know, bringing Bucky back mm-hmm. for, you know, I don't know, 40 years. Like it, it was just so unexpected and blew me away. And it was fun knowing that going into the movie and then watching people who didn't read the story, just, you know, gasp whenever they find out it's Bucky. Like it's, it's just a really cool thing. And, and, probably my favorite cool well so i can give you now like a 30 second you know time window to do any sort of plug you want to do for the store if people are in st louis uh what do you why should they come to the store and check it out well uh the store's been there almost 30 years now um i took it over from uh my friend steve who unfortunately passed away a few years ago but he absolutely made that store just this wonderful place. You know, all the customers that have stayed loyal are just a big family there. So it's, you know, anytime you come into the store, everybody's laughing, having a good time talking about comics and movies. And then as far as the store itself, we uh, we try to pride ourselves in our back issue selection. So we have a lot of collectors that come in and try to find those Key issues or fill gaps in their collections, and uh, and that's what I look for whenever I visit other stores is their back issues. So that's what I try to to keep up with in in my own store. So that's great. And can we find you online or Facebook or anything? Absolutely. Uh, we have a Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, which is Comic HQSTL, and then we do have a website, which is ComicHQSTL.com. Well, great. Jake, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been fun. Thank you for having me. Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression, and where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have sensors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and submitting your submission. We need cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. Should we move on to V for Vendetta? Yeah, let's shift into another sort of uh, gear here for the Oliver Stoneian V for Vendetta. Oliver Stone, you love to cite Oliver Stone, and I never quite think you're doing it right. Maybe that's what makes him such an interesting filmmaker. I feel like when I use Oliver Stone as a weapon against you, what I'm referring to is um, very paranoid liberal. 
Oh, I see. Sure. All right. So V for Vendetta, 2005, based on uh, Alan Moore graphic novel. Hey, and, once again, yeah. who knew? Um, and adapted by the Wachowski siblings right. who did The Matrix. And, yes. Um, perennial favorite here on the uh podcast speed racer that's not true that's not Um, a movie i think you and i have ever discussed (laughs) and jeff mcteague directs this one um so yeah this is a was uh, i think maybe written in like the early 80s but like published in mass in the late 80s and it is a dystopia imagined in the english 90s based on sort of the uh a word I've learned specifically for this podcast, Thatcherite, Thatcherite England, um, about that uh, right-wing regime becoming more and more totalitarian is what's kind of imagined in this uh, in this political allegory, and uh, you know, preposterously authoritarian, like real, real fascist. <laughs> um, oh yeah, card-carrying members. Yes, uh, but. The movie is still set in England, but instead of being set in the 90s, it's set in the 2020s, uh, came out in 05, and stars Natalie Portman as a person, uh, apparently at first an ordinary person, Evie Hammond, um, living under this uh, regime uh, led by Chancellor Adam Sutler, John Hurt, and she's going out for a date one night and you see that there's this very, uh, you know, Orwellian structure and she's not allowed to be out. And there's a curfew and she's saved from these real creepy, like sexually assaulting finger men, like the local cops who like catch people who are out at night. Um, but she's saved by V, a man with a very flat set of bangs and <laughs> a fake bangs and a Guy Fox mask. Um, and this is your first introduction to this, uh, the, I guess, superhero is what we'll call him. But whether he's a hero uh, is, or what makes him super is kind of left left ambiguous. Um, Can, uh, did you, when you watched this movie this time, have around this point in the movie that you've just described, have right. the thought of this is like a weird adult Beauty and the Beast? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, like when when we hit that sort of point where he, I've seen this movie like when it came out in theaters, um, but I hadn't I hadn't rewatched it. Yeah. Since, um, but I didn't remember it being so like Beauty and the Beast. It definitely is. Um, Show me the V. Right. <laughs> um. So, basically, it becomes a question of whether Evie will full on join the resistance as V finally makes it onto the airwaves and starts to talk to London. And you kind of see this nation in the movie start to be won over. They realize they're living under... If they don't realize they're living under a totalitarian regime, they at least realize they're being lied to. And then maybe what caused this regime to take effect um, was staged by the regime itself. Um, V becomes more and more popular. He has this plot, or I should say the Guy Fox thing is that he blows up the old Bailey in London on November the 5th, Guy, Guy Fox day, and then commands the people a year from now to join him, uh, in Trafalgar square when he blows up parliament, like Guy Fox uh, uh, attempted to do some 400 years earlier. Um, and so we see a story that takes place over the course of a year with one normal person and then, uh, one disfigured Zorro in a mask. Yeah. 
and a whole allegory about Nazism slash George W. Bush. Well, uh, pivoting off that, let me ask you this. At what moment does this movie like hit you with a th- like the sledgehammer of 9-11? Like, does it happen specifically? Because it definitely does happen. But is there a moment? You know, for me, I will say the part that felt most um, of its time was the really the British imitation of Fox News, like state sponsored TV. The moment when uh, Colonel Prothero says, I wish I could have been there myself to like pretend that he was going to fight a like martial arts sword wielding terrorist really felt to me like something like Bill O'Reilly or Glenn Beck would have done said in 06, just at like the height of their mania. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that is what spoke to me most about the era. Interesting. But I think this one is grounded most in a plot that makes sense in movie terms. Yes, absolutely. Say more. Um, Because, like, this sort of political thing, but also this, like, strong woman's story, but also this, like, mysterious sort of... It's like, what makes it American is sort of more the Beauty and the Beastness to it, or it's sort of the Pygmalia kind of thing. Right. Uh where she like learns not how to be like a proper lady, but how to be like a member of the resistance, even in so far as having, you know, this like pretty brutal sequence where she's like, has to shave her head is like, and then imprisoned and tortured for what? Six months. Like this movie takes the course uh, is just one year in, in the life of these people. Talking about how this one is well adapted into movie terms, I yeah. also think that, of course, the Wachowskis just know how to do that, right? They That's what they did with The Matrix, which comes from comics. They know how to look in their very hyper-stylized way, take that, the still image, and make it kind of cartoonishly cinematic, but also like dark and weird. We can talk about how Zack Snyder kind of fails to do that later, Um, but the way that, yeah, just the way that like V moves, um, and the fact that you're dealing with a cartoon mask in the real world, I really just kind of like the, um, like the visual dialect of this movie. Right. I think the Wachowskis are good at taking what they like from source material and making it, you know, a compelling film that still has a darkness to it, but not a darkness that maybe people reading comics like experience or want to experience in the medium of film. Hmm. You know, like I think a lot of people, you know, we'll get into Watchmen in a second, but like what I think the dividing line is in that movie is people who like comics and people who like movies. Right. That's true. But (laughs) this one is definitely a movie. Right. And you don't need to know anything going in and you don't need to like buy into anything larger. And I think that's how you have to look at these movies, you know, almost like the disaster artist, if you will, of like, do you need to know the story here in order to like appreciate this? And I think when it comes to a movie, the answer has to be no. I I would agree. Um, Another thing that it does amazing at is that doesn't actually seem to have any bearing toward the comics is the auditory experience of this movie is incredible. Hugo Weaving's vocal performance, Stephen Fry, John Hurt, these like English actors just like going for broke to, in Hugo Weaving's case, give a performance where you never see his face, but have to, um, you know, fall in love with him either as a pseudo romantic figure or a, you know, transgressive political icon just via his voice 
is so impressive and has nothing to do with comics. It has everything to do with his production. Right. Do you want to talk about Natalie Portman? What do you think? You buy the accent? Oh, her accent's not great. I don't think, but she's always, she's always good. I can't really think, I mean, other than like Queen Amidala, which is not her fault. Like I just, she doesn't give bad performances. Yeah. Unless she's got like a George Lucas script. Like God, Annie, no. (laughs) Um, There's the moment where after you realize that maybe her imprisonment is not what it seems, where she breaks down in the middle of the room and really a huge, a humane shot, unlike any other shot in this movie, the camera like pulls out so you see the whole room and her just kind of hyperventilating. And I feel like that's even where like uh, McTeague, who's really in it for the the reds and blacks and the cape twirls, is just like, hold on, I have Natalie Portman here and I need to let her like act this moment out. Yeah. I think that's the, her best moment in the movie. Definitely. It's certainly not her Shawshank Redemption like, ah. No, that doesn't quite work. I do like the way in this movie you can see, in an almost glib way, you can see the sh- the still shots that are were clearly from the comic, like the the glass of milk shattering in Sutler's hand when he watches uh, right um, Stephen Fry. That's very clearly a one single panel in the comic. Yeah, that's funny. But I mean, in that in that way, it's a faithful visual adaptation, at least. I would agree. You know, because I think it means more to adapt these stories for a movie than just like being faithful to the plot. Yeah. Um, Before we turn toward a rating, do you have any thoughts on like what is this movie a little too? Are there parts of it that are too teenagey? Like, why did so many kids in my high school love this movie, even though they weren't English and most of them would have voted for George W. if they could? Um. I don't know. It's like a cool movie. Yeah. And it sort of uh, gives anarchy a pop sensibility. Yes, that's true. And it's like... I mean, in the way The Matrix has been like, I don't think there's anything that sort of men's rights about The Matrix, but certainly a whole contingent of people do. That's true. You're right. You're right. Um, Hugo Weaving's performance is so... He's saying we should save it, but it also sounds like he's saying let the world burn in a very sophisticated, self-justifying way that I think is attractive if you don't think too hard about it. I mean, he's, he's essentially the Unabomber, right? Like, the <laughs> Unabomber's not wrong, but the Unabomber was killing people. Sure, yeah. You know, like, of course we are overly dependent on technology. Like, of course the V for Vendetta world, you know, is fascist and it should be destroyed but the the ends do not justify so i'm gonna go ahead and say good good i think so too um i don't i'm not as like ecstatic about this movie as i was when i was 17 um i guess for reasons that should be obvious um and you know it can be ridiculous uh, the number of times that John Hurt says, Mr. Curry, <laughs> like it's very heavy handed at certain moments. Um, and I think if you like look at V too closely, you're going to be like, why does this movie like this monster so much? And why does Natalie Portman like this monster so much? But right. I-, I also think, yes, it's great to look at. It remains exciting. It remains like a compelling nursery rhyme. And even with some smart moments, you know what I loved was the moment where the minister of propaganda, when they're trying to take back the, like the BBC station. And he's just like, you know what we need is cameras so I can create fake news out of this experience on the fly. 
and right. that's a really smart bit. Um, I'll say good, good too. It's not perfect, but it's it's watchable and it's well made. We need more movies like V for Vendetta. Like, I would love more comic book movies to like, yeah, be confident to be this dark. Sure, and unaffiliated and unbound to the next thing. Right. Yeah. Um, should we talk to Scott Meslow? Let's do it. All right. More V for Vendetta coming at you. The only verdict is vengeance. A vendetta held as a votive, not in vain. For the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. <laughs> Verily, this vicious soise of verbiage veers most verbose. So let me simply add that it's my very good honor to meet you, and you may call me V. Well, myriad talented culture writers have been on the show one time. Our moms have been on the show one time. Uh, French-Canadian director Philippe Filardeau has been on the show one time. But only Scott Meslow has been on Be Real twice. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Thank you. I am honored. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's an honor for us. Um, I'm not sure you know, what you've done to be this this pioneer of, of two-time guesting um i mean yes i do you wrote another great piece about uh something pop culturally relevant we're going to talk about politics and action movies once again um so you wrote just a couple weeks ago about v for vendetta for is it a recurring gq series does this hold up yeah this is a new one we're doing okay every every couple weeks we look at uh look at something and find out if it holds up you did the burton batman movies too um i did they do hold up i am happy to record it seems like so far you've written on things that mostly hold up which is nice uh, don't watch wedding crashers that's uh oh. that's been our big swing and a miss okay yeah i imagine the gender politics of that uh yeah aren't aren't perfect for these times um but we're going to talk about uh just bigger more general politics uh between authoritarianism and anarchy with uh 2005's v for vendetta so um scott i wonder if first because it seems like a a pivotal distinction to make is the difference between source material and film uh could you give us sort of like a baseline for what alan moore's uh late 80s comics with david lloyd are like or what they tried to get across politically yeah, it's a very different take on the same story. It's really interesting to kind of look at them in conjunction. Um, Moore has famously, of course, complained about literally all of his film adaptations. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one he particularly does not like because his comic is really very specifically about Thatcherite England. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 a lot of a very specific political climate that he was responding to. So he, over the course of 10 issues, originally written in a serialized and then collected into a graphic novel, which is when V took off. It was not particularly popular when it was being published in real time. Told this story about kind of a, a hypothetical world in which a fascist government takeover happens in England due to a global crisis that leads to a total destruction of the political landscape as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is obviously not what the film is doing. <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, it's set in what, 2027? Uh, yep. And it came out uh, smack in the middle of uh, W's second term. Um, how, how would you say that Moore's original, what is like the political tone of it? Or how does it deal with the conflict between uh, fascism and anarchy? 
Well, I think the yeah the key choice that's being made in the film adaptation that is not true in the comics is that the film really picks a side. You know, we we get the sense that V is right and this top this government needs to be toppled. Sure. The comic is a lot more ambivalent about all of that. The <laughs> V's anarchy is very violent, results in a lot of trauma for his protege, and is not at all. It's not at all clear at the end of the story if we're supposed to be on his side or the government's side. It's really more saying these are two extremes, they're both wrong, and maybe there's not even anything in the middle that can reconcile that. Maybe we're just going to constantly have this push and pull of these two terrible political forces which are ultimately destructive to people. Sure. So I think it's fascinating, and I, I assume that, that you're interested in this, just like when a era that maybe we were too close to previously just like starts to come into view in terms of its, I mean, not only it's like aesthetics and it's popular culture, but especially it's politics. And it seems like that is uh, accomplishable for sure these days, as far as the Bush years go. So I wonder when you watch this movie, um, which I, th- it came out in 05, but hit America in 06. Is that right? Yes, okay. that's right. Um, what do you see in it that is like, sp- there are a lot of things that seem like generally, um, you know, Bush-esque, but what do you see that's like very specific to 2006? Anything jump out? What surprised me more than anything about revisiting it is I had, I kind of stopped thinking of it as a post 9-11 text, but it really is. I mean, it's, it's pretty soon after 9-11 that this movie got made. And for this movie to be saying the terrorist who wants to blow up government buildings is correct and we should like him. It's even in this bizarre fantasy world, that's a pretty bold political statement for a major studio to be making at the time. True. And I feel like even now, 10 years later, if you made a movie virtually identical to this, the, the right-wing firestorm that would emerge from it would be totally different than what greeted this movie at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does, it does hit that, hit that what's, it strikes me as post 9-11 because the, the, the takeover by Suttler's is that his name Suttler Adam Suttler yeah okay his fascist government comes in the wake of this massive tragedy and you have the you have that resonance of um right after horrifying upheaval is the time when people seek security and safety over all else with just this government it turns out has accomplished via a virus but is is that a post 9-11 resonance resonance for you yeah, I think, if anything, what it does is feed into some of the conspiratorial stuff. Oh, because sure, yeah. That's one of the twists of this movie is that the, the right-wing party created this virus, basically engineered the terrible event that then led to their government takeover. So, if anything, we're, you know, we're in InfoWars territory with some of this stuff. But, <laughs> that's true. But it's not a – I don't think it's looking for so much a direct 1-1 parallel as it is about worrying about government overreach and what that could eventually lead to. Yes, um, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about how much Prothero actually kind of looks like a British Alex Jones, and I didn't <laughs> care for that headspace. So <laughs> it's dead on. It uh, doesn't work out too well for me. That's true. That is very true. Um, so let's talk about V himself, because it seems like one of the key distinctions um, between graphic novel and film is just how. Uh, I guess likable would be sort of the cheap word, but like V in the film as voiced by Hugo Weaving is, you know, very dashing and very charming. And, um, you know, if that mustache wasn't ceramically glued onto that mask, he would twirl it. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But that's not, is his vengeance a little more vile in the original more? 
How many more V words can you use? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, vindication, very, that's it. That's all I got. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting change for the movie, and I get why they do it. Uh, v is, I mean, I, I would go so far as to call him adorable in the movie. Sure, and yeah, at times. He's occasionally, you know, murdering people, and Evie occasionally has a problem with it, but when she wakes up, he's got a floral apron on, right. and he's dancing around and making her an eggy in a basket. Mm-hmm. This, like, particularly cute breakfast food. Right. That's, that is not the V of the comics. The V of the comics is... I think a more troubling character kind of going in line with the Alan Moore's concern about what anarchy might look like. He really messes with Evie. Uh, one, one subplot that is totally dropped from the film that I quite like in the comics is that he keeps hinting about who he might be in the comic. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the, in the comics narrative, Evie's dad has been disappeared by the government a decade earlier. And he keeps kind of dropping hints that he might be her dad. Oh, really? And, He's almost certainly lying by the end of the comic. It's pretty clear. You never you never see his face, but it's it's more another way to manipulate her and get inside her head. Yeah, that's fascinating. And he's doing a lot of stuff like that, doing really weird head game stuff for, as far as I can tell, his own amusement. Maybe because it's part of his whole break her down and build her up thing, but it also just seems like he might be a total psychopath. Right. And the film kind of goes the other way by making him strange, but super intelligent sure. and totally infallible. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty different take on a character who's superficially pretty similar. Yeah. I mean, it's in the movie, your choice is basically between a guy and in, in John Hurt's chancellor, who is a pencil mustache and some German short of doing a Hitler impression and like Zorro. Um, well, and his name is Adam Suttler. How close to Adolf Hitler can you <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> they are not being subtle. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I can't believe I hadn't thought about that. Um, so let me ask you this. I wondered, does the graphic novel problematize at all this idea that if if there are exploding fireworks of V and V is getting you know, spray painted over every, um, you know, regime sloganeering poster on the streets and everyone is wearing the mask. I sort of, I had this feeling watching the movie where like, on the one hand, yeah, he's a dashing hero and that's fine. But as I thought more and more about it, it's like this kind of iconography and worship is the sort of thing that happens when a, you know, say a communist regime in the 20th century overthrows a fascist regime, but it's really you know, six, six of one, half a dozen of your next authoritarian thing. Does the, does the book problematize at all? The fact that maybe there's like a hint of fascism in like your, your overlord who talks to everybody the same way. Right. I mean, it certainly raises more of those questions. Uh, one of the things that I kept thinking about was the reign of terror of Robespierre, you know, right. where it's where the French revolution turns into a thing that was more horrible than what it overthrew. <laughs> And has no standards or morals. And I think the comic leaves you in a place where you can theoretically imagine that. I mean, you know, the film's, the film's ending is a total triumph for V. You know, it's, it's literally a crowd of hundreds and hundreds of people, including people who have died, wearing his mask, you know, looking at the, looking at the fireworks and celebrating the overthrow of this government. And, and in the context of the film, that is the correct response. It is really good that this government is gone. But the comic's version is more, you know, I, I'm allowed to spoil everything here, right? Go for it, please. Yeah. Right. So, so in the comics version, V still dies, still don't know who he is, but instead of a giant crowd of people who have already totally bought into what he's doing, Evie puts on the mask 
and uh, in the costume and just addresses a crap. Oh, as as kind of the government is self-immolating. It's much less about V having successfully engineered it and more him creating the circumstances by which all of the people in the government start turning on each other. Mm-hmm. So I can. There's, it's a really great moment at the end of the comic there because on one level, it's really powerful to say V is dead, but someone really has learned from his example right. and his legacy will go on in another way. it's He was really messed up and now that his influence is spread and that someone else is continuing to spread it, what's the logical end game here? Right. It's, it's a lot murkier about, about what the after effect of this is going to be and whether or not it's even been a good thing. So I think it's a more interesting and complicated political parable. But I think I think in a vacuum, both versions of the story actually tell perfectly fine self-contained stories. What do you think the reaction would have been if this movie had been set in the States in 2006? How about that, like, counterfactual? Yeah, I wonder if that, if it being British, even though it is clearly an American and not a British political allegory, which is another problem that Alan Moore had with yeah. it. I wonder if that created a distancing effect for people who might have otherwise criticized it. I, while I was researching my piece, I did find some criticism of it from from you know Americans who you know political commentators who were offended by this or that. But it was pretty tepid. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty small. Yeah. Um, I just don't. I don't know how many people care about or like have yeah. a gut reaction to seeing uh, the. Oh wait, what's it called? Um, the Bailey, <laughs> like CGI. <Right>. Explosion. <laughs> That's part of it. It, it. it assumes, I mean, they, you know, they give you your little Guy Fox backstory at the start of the movie, but it assumes a depth of political knowledge that I don't think Americans had or have. Yeah. Maybe a little more now because of this movie. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think the, the answer to the question is actually twofold. I think if the movie was set in America at the time, it would have been more controversial. And I think if the movie came out in either form now, it would be very controversial. So... My last sort of question, Scott, and this is maybe this seems a little out of left field. Um, so I was 15 when this movie came out, and 15 year old boys just went, were over the moon for it. If they could have ordered Guy Fox masks, they would have. Um, specifically, like people who were ostensibly like George W. Bush supporters, not that they could support him, they were 15. Um, and it got me thinking, like, is this movie sort of like the fight club for, like, my, like, mini generation of, like, uh, you know, men who want to try on what it is to be disaffected for, like, just a second before they... <laughs> before they. That's an interesting thought. Uh, I think if that's the case, you could do worse. That's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's... Young men today are certainly doing worse. Right. Um, <laughs> and so to say, you know, is it... I think it's politically, you know, it's a little simplistic and naive, as we've talked about. But, like, he thinks fascism is bad. That's, <laughs> as a political allegory, like, that's not bad right now. That's better than the alternative. I, I think we're maybe in an era where simplistic political allegories are more valuable than complicated ones. Sure, that at the end of the day, it's just like fascism really sucks and everyone should be against it. Yeah, I mean, I think 15-year-olds are perfectly capable of being smart and understanding complicated things, but, like, it's not a bad lesson to internalize when you're 15. There you go. Carry that with your life. Yeah, and it's, you, it'll cause you less pain than starting a fight club in your neighborhood or something. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Scott Meslow, pleasure to talk to you again, man. Thanks for your thoughts. And yeah, it's been great. Everybody keep up with his work. All right, thanks. This is 
just a matter of time, I suppose. My friend, we end our Alan Moore conversation with 2009's Watchmen. The face you are making right now is so pained. It's such a harbinger of the conversation to come. So Watchmen begins much like Miracle, um, the <laughs> hockey movie we review, uh, reviewed last week, except Miracle is directed by none other than Zack Snyder. And Carter never became president. And Carter and Nixon's been president for six terms or something. Sure. <laughs> and so we go through this reimagining of what America looked like from what the 1920s until here in the 1980s i think it's i think it's like 40 to 85 or something you're gonna have to like help me out here because oh, I'm watchmen be, is very hard to synopsize well also i don't think i like really got it mm-hmm. like i stared at the television for two hours and 40 minutes this morning like i blinked sure but i wasn't on my phone i wasn't doing anything i was staring at the street the staring at the screen, trying to understand what was happening, and I don't think I did. Ooh. But in the excruciatingly long opening title sequence, <laughs> we see this alternate uh, history play out where, like, yes, Nixon's, like, been president forever, and uh, Vietnam was... Well, there was, like, these first wave of superheroes, and right. they were... They maybe did fought crime, or maybe they just, like, sexually harassed each other right and then they had kids or some of them had kids that became more superheroes who actually like did things like end the vietnam war sure and now we're with them after the superheroes have been outlawed and they are no longer allowed to be vigilantes but yeah, like I someone's they- killing them so it starts with their like f- uh, sort of father figure of the group like getting murdered yeah, I may, maybe more like a avuncular <laughs> figure. Sure. Um, yeah. I, so I think this is Moore's. You set it up fine. I think Moore's. It's Moore's take on like, um, what if golden age superheroes like Batman and Superman um, were real and as naive in real life as maybe they appear on the page from him writing in the mid eighties, and what if the like silver age superheroes, um, who in this case are like. Uh, in this universe there are like Rorschach and uh Dr. Manhattan and um Night Owl Part Two. Uh Laura Jupiter, aka Silk Spectre Two. There you go. Um what if they came along and had to deal with sort of the you know the taxi driverization of America and like the dawn of the nuclear age and like urban decay, um, and with a of course a noir element. Um but chronologically, this movie is impossible to synopsize. It's funny that Zack Snyder would do this. I was looking at Alan Moore quotes, and he said, by this time in my career, I was intentionally making things that would be unfilmable. I was so interested in the comic medium <laughs> that I wanted to make things that couldn't be translated to movies. And Zack Snyder's like, I hear you, bro, but like, I've got three hours, $200 million, and I'm going to try. <laughs> Yeah, that's basically it. And what I think he made is probably Alan Moore's nightmare. Watchmen. One of us died tonight. 
Somebody knows why. Somebody knows. Harry had been working for the government. Maybe it was a political killing. Maybe someone's picking off costumed heroes. I think that this is, without question, one of the hardest movies I've it's been to watch in this podcast. Yeah. And I'm going to say that pretty early because like, like I told you, I wanted to like this movie, you know, Jake was saying that he thought it was like a pretty good adaptation. I was, I was pumped up for this and it's, it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible movie. It's a, it's a gross, horrible movie. And I tell you what it starts with is the ridiculous casting in this movie. Go on. Just keep going. Billy Crudup, the lead guitarist from Almost Famous, does not have the acting range to do a guy that has, like, lost his ability to, like, interact with humans because of being, like, blue blued. He's been blued. Uh-huh. And now he's blue, and he can grow, <laughs> and he can take things apart, and he kind of wants to fuck, but, like, he doesn't want to, like, do anything too serious. Cause he's busy yeah. taking things apart and like Billy Crudup, he just sort of like whispers and mumbles and the guy moves so slowly on the screen too. <laughs> this is the most boring superhero movie. Everyone's just moving so slowly and there's no action until that like horrible prison breakout scene with that horrible violence <laughs> It's it's un unpalatable violence. Okay. This guy, the little the the little person from Seinfeld's right. like orders somebody to like take two guys' arms off with ch- a chainsaw for no fucking reason. So let me provide maybe a half rebuttal. Um as somebody who hasn't read comics since his mom bought him like a Spider-Man anthology when he was 12, I read Watchmen for some reason this weekend, basically because I was worried that w- I wouldn't know anything at all. So And you were right probably. I yeah, I you rented it from uh, Multnomah County Libraries um and was just like got pretty immersed in yes what is like a of course a weird dark fucked up like nihilistic exercise and like comic postmodernity, <laughs> but i don't think this should be a movie but like the comic I, I would argue that it isn't <laughs> well this this is what i want to say is like every time you're like it should be a miniseries the movie fan in me always wants to be like no movies should be movies but like this just doesn't make any sense it's so None. vignette heavy and so like character profile for two hours of its two hours and 40 minute runtime that like it doesn't register as a film that's going anywhere. And Zack Snyder's particular sensibility of a director who always feels like he's trying to crescendo, but is also never going anywhere, like doesn't suit it very well. I weirdly think that Zack Snyder is both shows more fealty to the comics than anybody would. And yet the fact that he's doing that is the wrong approach and that the Alan Moore version of a director would look at these comics and be like, I have to approach this adaptation the same way Alan Moore approached superheroes. 
you know, someone at some point said, like, we need a young Jeremy Irons for the villain here. And he's, and Zack Snyder, like, turned around in his swivel chair and was like, did you say British? Like, Matthew Good's British. <laughs> uh-huh. I know a Brit. And then, so, and then Matthew Good is the, the bad guy and, like, not very good. You know, uh-huh. I already talked about Billy Crudup not being very good. Melinda Ackerman is trying so hard, but Patrick Wilson's like, I don't know where my career is headed at this point. I, as a Crudup fan, I, I kind of like CGI it. The CGI just, like, is so awful, too, of him. Like, why didn't they just, like, paint him blue? They, like, for some reason, they're like, we're going to motion capture him and we're going to make him bulbous. Did you guys ever see uh, League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen? It's going to be like that, but blue. Boy, you're so and stuck his on penis, bulbous. his penis is hanging out in every shot of this movie. Everybody that knows in. that about Dr. Manhattan. Are you not a fan of the comics? <laughs> I can't say that I am. In the comics, too, is his penis hanging out? Oh, sure. You betcha. Wait, really? I haven't read them. No, yeah. that's. I mean, that's the thing. He wanders around naked. That's awesome. <laughs> it didn't take much to convince you. Um, but, like, it's so stupid the way it's done here. Um. Well, and the music cues. Well, okay, so here's, here's the thing. There is no song less sexy then if you're going to do a version of Hallelujah, it's just like a lovemaking scene. It's got to be Jeff Buckley. <laughs> yeah. But the, you have uh, Leonard Cohen doing the, uh, ooh, uh, ooh, uh, like that kind of like, I heard there was a secret chord. It's like, this is not a sexy rendition of this song to be doing while they're like finally consummating their like weird sexual vibe. Even though like, isn't she like kind of still with Dr. Manhattan? Sure. Well, the, the problem is, okay, so I feel like everything you're going to say, I'm going to go back to Zack Snyder, is that, like, Zack Snyder has no sense of humor and not a very depthful sense of irony. So, like, that sex scene is hilarious. Like, it's objectively, like, whose idea was this to, like, film this this way and set it to this? But, like, Zack Snyder doesn't think it's funny. He thinks it's, like, hot. And it is not <laughs> Yeah, it is he's cold got, as Mars up there. I feel like he has only like two sort of, you know, uh, poles in order to gauge like what he wants his movie to be like. It's like these are things that are cool and these are things that are not cool. Right. And he like definitely <laughs> thought that like what's a cool way we could do a sex scene? It's like, well, what if we use what if we pay the million dollars it costs to pay play 30 seconds of a Leonard Cohen song? Right. And just do it here. And that was part of their budget. And that's stupid. Sure. I mean, Watchmen is, to toss around that Alan Moore word that he tagged his own work with, it's unfilmable. And I think it has to be the most unfilmable of the three. Because they're also, so they're all bound by Jeffrey Dean Morgan cast as Edward Blake slash the comedian, which I actually think is great casting. Um, But that character is so fucked up and of course of course he is the book knows it he sees he sees he's modeled himself i think the somebody i think rorschach says as a parody of the violence and greed uh sexual economic uh vices whatever of the entire human race and he is like fashioned himself into a like a nihilistic practical joke which is very intriguing on the page but like 
this is where the filming th- thing comes in is that when say for instance you have a attempted sexual assault it lasts two panels of a comic but Zack Snyder or any director has to make you watch it and so then you're like first of all you're probably like why do I care about this comedian figure in the first place and then you're like right and now he's raping someone like I hate him and there's like yeah a litany of misdeeds and it's just like why why is the linchpin of your movie like the worst possible caricature of a superhero? Right. I, I don't think Zack Snyder's sense of irony is strong enough to get that across. I think he only understands the brutality of Moore and not the irony. Yes. No, that's a, I think that's a good assessment. Yeah, he's just not a creative enough director to do something interesting or try to make it a movie. Yeah. Like, I think a smarter director would have made it about this daughter's sort of legacy and the fact that she's torn between like the man she's supposed to be with and the man she actually like wants to be with. Yeah. Which is an interesting play. And then you could have something like sort of Brooklyn esque. I like that movie. Did you see Brooklyn? The Saoirse Ronan Irish immigrant movie. Yeah. But I think this movie's so hyper masculine in its sensibilities that it like has to be a movie about like men getting over their insecurities or like kicking ass. Cause that's like what men are supposed to do. And then it's, which makes it sort of icky in this case, when you make all the women on screen, like caricatures of women, it's like, I mean, it doesn't do anything to undo Sally Jupiter's sort of like, she like almost got raped, but then like ended up consensually sleeping with this guy and like having a daughter together. Yeah. And it like never like lets her off the hook for that. It like hangs her guilt and like characters sort of morals on this secret that she's kept, which is such like a stupid sexist read about the situation. Sure. (laughs) You're right. You're right. Um, I think it's I think it's I think this is an undeniable bad bad. It's completely unwatchable. It's totally unwatchable and it's not well made. I think the ambition uh, I'm so stuck because I think it's an I, act of hubris. <laughs> but sometimes acts of hubris can be interesting. I think yeah, that then you have like um you know deep blue sea <laughs> or like the perfect storm. As someone who just read the comics for the first time this weekend. I was amazed to see this unfold, like almost a shot panel for panel remake of the comics. Just like, is he really going to do this? Is he really going to make this little of a movie while trying to pull at the subtext of what's in Watchmen with like, I don't know. I thought the casting is pretty spot on, even if the actors aren't the best and like can't move around very much. I just think you need a more A-list actor to carry this. Just the way like Henry Cavill's not a very compelling Superman. Yeah. Like there's no good people to watch in this. You have a lot of like supporting actors like not doing very much. Now you're right. It's and you al- shouldn't it's, bring It's almost good bad for me, but I'll come with you. It's bad bad. This is not a comic reviewing podcast. This is a movie reviewing podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you keep that in mind. I'll, well, I get to yell at you every time you bring up miniseries from now on. I, I mean, I feel like it's an easy go-to thing to say here on the podcast. Sure. I hear you. Um, kind of wrapping up here. 
as an Alan Moore know-nothing, I think one of the cool things that I kind of inferred from what was truly like a mixed bag of movies um, is that it's very interesting how he imagines the motivations of would-be collaborators as so ideologically opposed that they like cannot work together. I think about something like, you know, the Marvel movies all building toward other Avengers movies is like the links of this chain and how like really what those people argue about from movie to movie, whether it be like a civil war or just like Hulk and Iron Man fighting is so like manufactured to like create a problem that ultimately results in a team up. Right. And Alan Moore, I think sees the fact that like no person willing to righteously crusade on behalf of mankind while acting as a superhuman themselves is going to be like an expert in compromise. Like these people are going to have ideological disagreements that will ruin their ability to collaborate. And I think that's true of all these works and kind of cool and like a good read on his part. Well, he's, I think he envisions the superhero genre as more of like an office comedy and less of like, you know, sort of a, an aspirational drama. Office comedy you know, or office tragedy? Well, I th- what I was thinking when you were talking just then was that it'd be funny if like Mike Judge did Watchmen. I think these characters are like funny, sad, and Zack Snyder doesn't like get that. These are like Charlie Kaufman characters. Sure, sure. <laughs> like if Charlie Kaufman did the adaptation for this, like I think it would be totally brilliant. But Zack Snyder did, and this movie's fucking awful. <laughs> Yeah, but Alan like, Moore, what is he? But what are we, I was trying to like figure out the man through these three like bastardizations of his vision, and like I don't know that I can. It's it's strange. Um, he's an occultist. If you told me he listened to the Clash's Sandinista for every single thing he ever wrote, I would believe it. Um, yeah, yeah. I just want to hang out with the Alan Moore circa. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because that's just like the work of a goofy old man. <laughs> right, yeah. That's kind of like the bedtime story version of what he does. Yeah, that's when like M. Night Shyamalan pivoted to like Lady in the Water kind of stuff. <laughs> but with swole hide. <laughs> yeah, with bulbous hide. <laughs> Purple oh. bulbous hide. Well, our potion is running out, so we had better go here on Be Real. Uh, thank you again to Jake Dilly and Scott Meslow. Such a pleasure to have those two on the show, helping us out, giving us the boost in our Alan Moore knowledge. Uh, as always, please check out the podcast at berealpodcast.com. Subscribe and rate is always the nicest thing you can do for the please show. Please rate. Yeah, yeah rate. Like, rate. Rate. And then, like, just pity retweet some of our tweets. Not pity. We don't need pity. I would, I would settle for pity. Tell a friend if you think they might like the show. If they That's li- what I meant. If they like a show where people, uh, you know, feverishly try to learn something they know nothing about for two days so they can podcast and then get some experts on the line, we're your people. We are that earnest in our own way. We like watching movies. Yeah, we just want to watch movies. And if we have to, like, ascertain some expertise to do so, we'll do it. Yeah. Be real. Be real. My friend, I'll talk to you next time. Until then. Until then.